don't like the president or criticizing him for coming here. President Bush would get the same thing when he did TV shows. It's the nature of the job, I guess, especially now that we have Twitter. But I think it's important to remember that presidents are people, too. And from time to time, we give celebrities a chance to read some of the mean things people tweet about them. And tonight, we extended that same courtesy to our commander-in-chief. And with that said, it's time now for an all-President Obama edition of Mean Tweets. Obama's hair is looking grayer these days. Can't imagine why since he doesn't seem to be one bit worried about all that's going on. <laughs> Is there any way we could fly Obama to some golf course halfway around the world and just leave him there? <laughs> well, R.W. is surfer girl. I think that's a great idea. <laughs> a 30 rack of Coors Light is $23 now at Sunstop. Thanks, Obama. How do you make Obama's eyes light up? Shine a flashlight in his ears. <laughs> That's pretty good. Somebody send Obama some life hacks on how to be a good president. Ha ha. Like I bet that would help. LOL. You know, the LOL is redundant when you have the ha ha. I'm all right with the president wearing jeans. I'm not all right with the president wearing those jeans. Can I just say something? Yeah, I think that's mean, and I don't think there's anything wrong with the jeans you wear. Jimmy, I think they've got a point. Hmm. Have you been working out? Mm -mm. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jimmy Kimmel. Are you sad that... Good morning, guys. I hope you're all well. As Brens mentioned, my name's Kimmy, and I'm one of the leaders here at Harbor City. And I just want to start off by saying, how ridiculous is that video? I just honestly can't believe that people in this world take time out of their lives to tweet uh, mean, aggressive, nasty things to people they don't even personally know or aren't really even that affected by in their lives. And... Um, I think that video is just such a good example of how a culture of outrage and aggression is just developing more and more in society. To be honest with you, when I was searching through um, examples of mean tweet videos, that was like the tamest one I could find. Obviously, it had to be church appropriate. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, there's just way worse things out there on social media that people are saying to one another with almost just no, like with just reckless abandon. And I think it would be safe to say that in the world right now, and um, we find a society that is filled with anger and rage and that almost has this deep angst residing within them that is just looking for any and every opportunity to unleash itself on the people around them. I think we don't only see this in social media with like all the bullying and criticism and attacking that goes on um, there, but we also see it in our roads. The, like road rage is just increasing. It's becoming more and more of a thing. I think last year there was an article in the news about a situation at Kensington Spa, which is a spa in Durban North, where two people were fighting over a parking bay and the one person shot the other person in the leg. That is over a parking bay. 
I think we see it playing out in other small ways too. Like often when people are driving on the road, if they don't indicate or if they don't move across quick enough or they're not slow enough or if they're driving too fast or driving too slow, we see people just get the sense of outrage in them where they just start hooting, pointing fingers, shouting at people. I think we would say that's pretty much a norm. I know I'm certainly guilty of that. Um, In fact, In the past week or so at work, I have, I work on a station drive. And if any of you have ever been there, you'll know like parking is a nightmare. And a couple of times now, like maybe five or six times, there's this one particular character who just keeps parking me in. Like they've got a double cab bucky that always seems to have a trailer then attached to it. And they will like continuously park in like four cars, not leave their number, like not do anything. And it always seems to happen when I'm in like this huge rush to go somewhere. I'll come downstairs and they've parked me in. I have no way of finding them. I don't know who they are, where they are, how to get hold of them. And I must confess to not a great moment in my life where I think it just got the better of me and I just became like really outraged at this person and reached into my handbag and grabbed, you might have seen me wear it, my bright pink lipstick and literally wrote on their window, why do you keep parking me in? And and just in this moment of complete like irritation and frustration and in some ways that's funny and I'm sort of making a joke of it now but in other ways it's actually really not... (laughs) that great and not a great reflection of my heart. I think another place we see this culture of outrage playing out is in shopping malls or in um, coffee cafes and that kind of thing. People waiting in line and just this impatience that wells up inside of us, especially when the person checking out their groceries kind of decides, oh, I just forgot one or two things. I'm going to leave my till and go and fetch them. This is, by the way, something I do constantly. And you just come back to the till and you look at the aisle and it's just eyes of outrage. Or when you go to a coffee shop and you order a coffee and you're in a huge rush and the barista's so slow and the person trying to pay for their coffee in front of you suddenly lost their wallet and there's just this outrage in you that's like, why won't you people hurry up? And you kind of want to like unleash your wrath on them. Maybe you keep quiet, maybe you react, I don't know. But there's something inside of us that just is outraged. And I think we see this in society. We're becoming a culture that is more and more angry um, and just has this deep angst um, at the heart of who we are, just waiting to kind of attack someone who wrongs us or harms us. Journalist uh, Jeffrey Kluger, he writes for Time magazine, puts it this way. He says, the easiest thing you will do all day is get ticked off at something. Someone cuts ahead of you in traffic, ticked off. Guy in front of you at Starbucks needs his entire order remade because his mocha half-cap double frap had the wrong number of espresso shots in it, even though you know full well that nobody can taste the difference. Exceedingly ticked off. We're all that way, and it's a problem. Anger is the lazy person's emotion. It's quick, it's binary, it's delicious, and more and more we are gorging on it. Rage uncorked becomes rage indulged, and rage indulged becomes rage applauded. And pretty soon, everyone with a grap believes it's okay to crank the machine up to an 11. We're living in a society where anything and everything is becoming worthy of some sort of outrageous outburst or attack on another person. 
Another journalist, Tim Crider, says, says this. He says, so many letters to the editor and comments on the internet seem to have this tone of thrilled vindication. These are people who have been vigilantly on the lookout for something to be offended by and have found it. Obviously, some part of us loves feeling one right and two wronged. Outrage is like a lot of other things that feel good like that, but over time devour us from the inside out, except it's even more insidious than most vices because we don't even consciously acknowledge that it's a pleasure. We prefer to think of it as a disagreeable but fundamentally healthy reaction to negative stimuli like pain or nausea rather than to admit that it is a shameful kick we eagerly indulge again and again. It is outrage porn selected specifically to pander to our impulse to judge and punish and to get us off on righteous indignation. And I think there is this thing inside of us that loves to know when we are right and when we have been wronged. And it's almost as we let this kind of stew in our minds and our hearts, we kind of get this righteous indignation within us. And as we let that fester and settle, it almost breeds within our hearts this anger, this bitterness, this outrage against others, which actually kind of leads to the resentment of others, probably to the point where if it moves past just disagreeing with someone, it's almost as if this resentment makes us unable to even see where they're coming from or their point of view. We can only think of our side of the story or where we have been wronged or harmed. And eventually this resentment almost leads to a sense of entitlement where we feel entitled to lash out on the people around us, kind of like I felt with my car the sense of entitlement that actually I have the right to take my lipstick and write on your window because you have done this and this and this and I am right and you are wrong. To be honest with you, um, the reason I'm actually talking on this this morning is because it's something that's been very close to me lately and I feel like has been impacting me quite profoundly. I really feel like God's been highlighting to me, not just through the moment with the lipstick, but in a few other scenarios, that actually I have this thing inside of me of unforgiveness and it's creating this anger and this bitterment this bitterness and this resentment towards other people. Because when we let these things fester in our hearts, it doesn't actually just affect the person that maybe has harmed us, but it starts to leak out into all our relationships with all different kinds of people and even with God. And it affects how we respond to them and to God. And I think the reason um, I've kind of got to this point is right at the beginning of the year, I had this moment happen in my life. And I kind of have alluded to it over time. I spoke about it a little bit last week. But at the beginning of the year, I decided to resign from my job working from my, for my mom. And my mom and I have always had a really difficult relationship. It hasn't been the easiest of relationships. But when I decided to resign from working with her um, and working for her, it really it just didn't go well. Um, we had a number of challenging conversations. They were really hard conversations. And it just, to be honest with you, just let me feel feeling incredibly wounded and hurt by her. And all throughout this year, I've kind of really struggled to forgive her for the things that she said and, and, and did during that time. Um, I think I've struggled to forgive her for almost like a lack of feeling like I have a mother. Um, just because our relationship broke down in such a hectic and profound way. Um, without even really consciously realizing it, like I said earlier, in that moment when that happened and when I chose to like hold on to this unforgiveness against her, 
it started to affect all my other relationships and how I viewed other people and responded to them. It almost created over like my eyes and a sense, this lens of offense and of outrage where I was just waiting to just kind of like unleash my rage or the anger in my heart against other people for any and every little thing that they did. But the beauty of being a follower of Jesus is that when he sends his Holy Spirit to live within us, he points these things out to us. He helps us. He wants us to be aware of the things in our lives that are not of him and that are hurting and that are harming us. But even better than that, he doesn't just point these things out to us or reveal and show these things to us. He takes us on a journey. He leads us. He calls us into um, a story of healing and redemption and restoration. Jesus shows us a better way to deal with our hurt and pain, and that is the way of love, grace, and forgiveness. The way of Jesus is totally countercultural to what we find in the world. The world will say to you, you have every right to be outraged about that. You have every right to stick it to the man, to enact your revenge on that person, to hit them where it hurts, because you know what? They deserve it. But the way of Jesus is so different to that. The way of Jesus calls us to love and forgiveness. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 to 32, or you can follow on the screens behind me. It says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. And so we see in that scripture that Ephesians 4 gives us a very big clue on how we allow bitterness, rage, and anger to settle in our hearts. It says in verse 26, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And in that scripture, there's two uses of the word anger. In the first line, it says, in your anger, do not sin. And the Greek word there for anger translates directly as anger, as we would know and understand it. But the second word, angry, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, is actually translated as this word wrath. It's the Greek word paragoismos. And what that actually means is that it's an anger mixed with this frustration, irritation, and bitterness. And so what the scripture is showing us is that as followers of Jesus, we should not let the sun go down while we are still experiencing this anger that is mixed with this bitterness and frustration and outrage. I think um, the first line where it says, in your anger, do not sin, shows us that there is a righteous kind of anger where things in this world happen to us that are wrong and that we are angry about. But where it becomes a problem for us is where it becomes mixed with this bitterness, anger, and um, 
almost resentment, where we're not processing our anger well. We see in the scriptures that Jesus himself has this righteous anger towards things that are unjust. And so it's, it's not the anger per se, but it's how we process the anger. The way of Jesus calls us as followers of him to process our anger and to almost, you know, confront it, to deal with it, not just to let it subside or wallop in, in us or to um, allow it to create these outbursts in our lives where it comes through in very health, unhealthy ways. The thing about relationships and human beings is that there will always be this conflict where anger rises up, where we feel like people have wronged us and harmed us. But the question is, how will we choose to process it? The way of Jesus calls us to process it, perhaps by confronting it in a gentle and kind and compassionate way with the other person, in a way that's aim and intent is actually to bring about healing and restoration and reconciliation. But more and more in the world, we see that how people want to deal with their anger is by this entitled sense of outrage. It's almost like those quotes we're saying. We've become hungry for outrage. We find it delicious. We're gorging on it. We want to get into it and let it affect who we are and just kind of attack those who have harmed us. Scripture shows us that there is a better way of dealing with our anger. And we see that. Jesus himself does this too. When he enters the marketplace in the, in the market and he sees that things are wrong, he addresses it, he deals with it, he confronts it. And we are called to do the same, but in a healthy um, way that brings about reconciliation and redemption. Otherwise, it becomes toxic to our hearts when we let it fester and settle in there. Verse 27 shows us why it becomes toxic to us. It says in verse 27, and do not give the devil a foothold. And to give the devil a foothold is to give him a piece of our heart, a place in our heart from which he can launch an attack into the rest of our lives. And we often see this when people are angry. It almost like opens up a little piece of ourselves where the devil can get in there and just start stirring and um, unleashing his agenda in our lives. It unleashes disaster not only into our lives, but into the lives of people around us. And I found this concept of a spite house, and I really think it's a great uh, metaphor that illustrates this point. So if you're wondering what a spite house is, it's basically a house that is built (laughs) with the sole purpose of unleashing Um, retaliation against someone. It's a way to enact revenge against them, to show them how you feel, to stick it to them, and to punish them for how they have harmed you. So the origin of a a spite house actually began with the Chicago billionaire. And essentially, he owned this little strip of land, and developers on either side of him built these huge, big developments um, on their properties. And so essentially, his piece of land now became like a nothing. He couldn't do anything with it. It was too small to do anything. So he approached the developer on the one side of him and was like, listen, I've got this piece of land. You've built this development. You could perhaps use it. Um, would you be willing to buy it from me? And this guy essentially says, well, you're in a really tough position because you can't do anything with this piece of land and really no one is going to want to buy it from you. So what I'll agree to is giving you a tenth of what it is worth and we'll call it a day. So this guy just gets furious. He is angry. He can't believe that this guy would take advantage of him in this way. And so he goes to the opposite side, to the other person that's developed that land. And he says to them, you know, 
I've got this piece of land, same story, do you want to buy it? And this guy says, actually, I've chatted to the other guy, and I've heard about what he offered you, and I'm really just not prepared to offer you any more than that. And so this guy is just livid, he's really angry, and so he goes about and he researches what he would legally be allowed to build on this property. And he essentially decides to do the only thing he can do within his legal limits, and that is to build a 150-centimeter wide house. And he builds it in between these two developments, and thus his neighbors are furious, but there's nothing that they can really do. Um, And since then, people have kind of adopted this idea of creating spat houses to kind of harm those that stand up or wrong them or harm them, stand against them. So... This spot house here on the screen, this is in Seattle, Washington. And essentially, the bottom picture there is that yellow house at the top next to the greenhouse. And here, what happened was a couple got divorced, and the husband got to keep the house in the divorce settlement. And basically, what was awarded to the wife was this little piece of the front lawn. That is what she got in the settlement. And so she decided that in, to really just aggravate him and irritate him, she was going to build what would just fit, literally just fit on this piece of lawn, her own little house right in front of him. I don't know why she would want to do this, because honestly, if, if you think someone's that terrible, why would you want to live right on top of them? But anyway, this is what she chose to do. The second development, um, the second picture, this is in New York City. And basically, this developer um, bought up all the property on that block and to do their, like, block of flats or whatever that is. And that little, like, almost triangular piece where the big arrow is pointing to, this person was really against development in New York City and was like, no matter what, I'm holding out. Like, you're not getting my little corner. And I think they were offered, like, crazy amount of money just to sell, like, their little slice of spot. And they just would not relent. Like, no amount of money was worth it to them. All they cared about was sticking it to this developer. Um, the third picture, this is in Boston. And this, this spot house involves two brothers. And the older brother, they were fighting over an inheritance for a piece of land. And the older brother won. And he developed this, like, magnificent, beautiful, big house in Boston. And... The thing he loved most about this house that he'd built on this piece of land was the fact that in this little alleyway, this light would just stream into his apartment and it would just like create this most beautiful, like calm, peaceful uh, home abode. And so his younger brother decided that this was not okay and that he wanted to hurt his brother because he felt like he was the one who was entitled to the land. And so he approached the city and bought the alley from the city and literally built his little house right on top of his brother's, basically taking away all the light that made his brother love his home so much. And he lived there until the day he died, just to really stick it to him. And the last picture is probably the most famous spot house in the world, in the spot house world. This is the result of another uh, divorce settlement. In the divorce agreement, the husband was told that he had to build the wife an exact replica of the house that they lived in and owned. But what the divorce settlement didn't say was where it had to be built. Big error. (laughs) So the husband decides, fine, I'll build you this house that is exactly like mine, except I'm going to build it in the middle of nowhere in a salt marsh. 
And so basically she could never really live there or use it because it was not close to anything or anyone. Um, and so these spat houses are created out of this outrage and bitterness. There's this forgive and forgiveness that is settled in people's hearts where they're like, actually, I'm going to make you pay for what you've done to me. These spat houses are meant to be a reminder to those who have harmed them of the offense that was caused against them. And the thing is, the truth of the matter is, is when we allow bitterness and anger and resentment to settle in our own hearts, in a way they become spat houses. Their whole agenda and operation, in a sense, becomes to remind those who have offended us of what they have done to harm us as we react and retaliate against them. We literally can build inside of ourselves a posture of offense and unforgiveness that goes against the very way of Jesus. In Hebrews 12, verse 14 to 15, it says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. A root of bitterness in our hearts defiles a community. It defiles relationships. We can't think that the unforgiveness we carry towards someone just impacts that relationship. It spills over into our hearts and contaminates our relationship with everyone around us and even with God. We see this in the life of Saul in the Bible. Saul was Israel's first king. He was the king chosen by God. It's okay. (laughs) He was the king chosen by God to rule and reign over Israel. And what we see happening is that God actually, there comes a point where God says, okay, not you anymore. I'm going to anoint David as king. And we see that Saul really becomes really quite outraged and jealous of David. He sees that David's winning many more battles than him. He's comparing himself to David. He feels wronged by David. He feels like he has a right to be celebrated as king. And now all of a sudden, David's getting all the applause. And we see that actually what ends up happening is that his whole life becomes about getting retaliation and revenge against David. His whole life becomes shame, Lorraine, don't worry about it. His whole life becomes about enacting um, revenge against David. And really what we see is that is such a waste of a life. We see that as Saul does that, he's actually enslaving himself to unforgiveness. We see that, in effect, unforgiveness and this need for revenge and um, this offense within his heart has become his master. And it begins to lead every single thing he does and chooses to do. He is governed by his bitterness and rage. And when we enslave ourselves in our own patterns of unforgiveness and bitterness and rage, we become enslaved to it too. This is what it looks like to give the devil a foothold in our lives. But Jesus shows us a much better way. In Ephesians 4 verse 31 to 32, it says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And the amazing thing when we come to Jesus and we put our faith and our trust in him and we begin a relationship with him, one of the amazing benefits of that is that we are forgiven of every way we have offended God, of every way we have sinned against him, of every way we have hurt him and wronged him and offended him. We see that in Jesus, our sins are completely forgiven. It says in scripture that God removes our sins 
as far as the east is from the west, he remembers them no more. That is what Jesus does for us. And he says, likewise, as followers of him, we are called to do the exact same thing. It says there, just as in Christ, as in, just as in Christ, God forgave you, we are to forgive one another. He sets a beautiful example for us of how we are to respond to the people that hurt and harm us. And I think for some of us, that's a really bitter, hard pull to swallow. Because I know it's true of in my own life, people have done things to me that just seem so unjust and wrong, and it just seems so hard to forgive them. And so this is not something that is particularly easy to do or that we always want to do, but it is what Jesus calls us to do. Perhaps someone has robbed you of happiness. They've robbed you of your freedom. They've robbed you of an opportunity. They've robbed you perhaps of your reputation. And it it only feels right, it only feels just that they should have to settle the debt for the harm that they've paid to you. There should be some sort of price that they have to pay in order to make these things right. And in a way, that's true. You know, when somebody harms you, there is a debt that is now incurred to make the situation right. And so suddenly when we're forced in the situation where we realize that this debt is owed, we really only have two ways to respond to it. The first way is that we can seek settlement of the debt. And we can do this in a couple of ways. We can perhaps inflict our own harm on that person by getting revenge or retaliating against them, by causing pain in their lives. We can do this with our words. We can approach them, being harsh with them, shouting at them, um, being mean to them, and perhaps the way that they have been mean to us. We could choose to tarnish their reputation if they've tarnished ours by slandering their name to other people. And in a way, when we do these things, there can be a certain amount of satisfaction that we gain from that, like, okay, now we're even. Um, now you've paid off your debt. But the only problem with this option is, is that it affects us. It affects our own character and our own hearts. It makes us cold and hard people that almost have this lens of offense and outrage against the people around us. If a certain type of person has offended or harmed us, we can form prejudices, perhaps against a different race or a different gender or a different class of person. We can become cynical and um, prejudiced. Um, And instead of almost sealing off the debt of hurt and pain and offense, we almost create cycles of hurt and pain and offense as we continue to retaliate against one another. Jesus, though, shows us a better option. He shows us the option of forgiveness. And to not lash out against someone, to not seek settlement of a debt, is a really painful thing to do. It actually can cause quite a lot of agony when you feel like you've been wronged and harmed and are unable to kind of make things right. And in fact, when we forgive someone for what they've done to us, we are basically saying you're off the hook, the debt is settled, just as Jesus does with us. And that can feel like a certain death. It can honestly sometimes feel like when we give forgiveness to someone for what they've done to us, that it feels like, in a sense, we are dying. And that is because we are taking on the cost. We are paying the cost of the offense that they have caused to us. Lewis Smead says, when you forgive someone, you are dancing to the rhythm of the divine heartbeat. God invented forgiveness as the only way to keep his romance with the human human race alive. 
He's the one who sets us the example of bearing the cost when it comes to forgiveness. He is the one who bore the ultimate cost on the cross. He is the one who shows us an example of forgiving people even when they do the meanest and hardest things to us because it is his way. His way is a way of love and and grace. But even though this is true, how do we go about forgiving someone when everything in our flesh just does not want to? In Colossians 3, verse 12 to 14, it says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has any grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And what the scripture shows us is that if we want to forgive someone, even when we don't feel like we actually can, we need to start learning how to clothe ourselves and dress ourselves in these things, in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, love, in order to be able to forgive them. And at first glance, you might think, okay, this idea of clothing yourself or getting yourself dressed is really easy. Like, everyone knows how to get dressed. Everyone can, you know, put an outfit together or whatever it is. But we see this with children, with babies, first of all. They have no ability of dressing themselves or clothing themselves. They are literally incapable of getting dressed. Like, they require people to dress them. Then as they grow up a bit, we see they become toddlers. They start showing an interest in putting on their own clothes and dressing themselves. But what we inevitably find happening, and I've had this happen with my kids, is that they will put the shoe on the wrong foot, the T-shirt will be back to front, um, the colors will clash, and it's really just kind of a disaster and a mess. And in a way, it's the same for us as followers of Jesus when we're learning to adopt this culture of forgiveness instead of a culture of outrage and offense. We have to practice clothing ourselves in these things when we are offended, wronged, and harmed by people. We need to learn to be honest about the ways that we have been harmed and wronged. I think for a lot of us, rather than having to deal with that offense or deal um, with something that's happened to us that just is not right, it's unjust, one of the things we can do is we can kind of want to bury it, like pretend like it did not happen because we would rather not deal with it. But if you're anything like me, inevitably what ends up happening is eventually someone will say something around that topic and you'll just flip you'll just burst because we haven't been honest about how we've been harmed and wronged. The other thing that I think scripture shows us is that we need to approach how we have been harmed and wronged with a humility by reminding ourselves that actually we have sinned against God and other people and God has forgiven us. We ourselves are not perfect and we have harmed and wronged others. And another thing is that we need to be real I mean, we need to understand that it's real people behind the offense. And so often what can happen is when somebody harms and wrongs us, we almost just don't even see them as a real person anymore. It's almost like they've become this cartoon caricature. And I don't know if you've ever seen those guys on the side of the road, they draw those like people with a big head. It's almost like an outline drawing of a cartoon, but it's you. I don't know if that makes sense. And what they'll inevitably do is they'll take a feature of yours and they'll blur it up. So basically, if you have a big nose, you have an exceedingly big nose in these cartoon kind of drawings. 
And that's kind of the same thing we can do when people harm us or offend us. We almost blow this offense of theirs up in our minds and in our hearts to become all that we see of them. But actually behind that offense and that wrongdoing is actually a real person who's been probably harmed and a lot, in a lot of pain themselves. When we think of them as real people, we begin to be able to humanize them and empathize with them, which makes it a lot more easier to forgive them. Forgiveness is extremely costly, and we see that Jesus paid the highest price so that we could learn from him and be an example. He could be an example to us of how we are to forgive others and what our posture should be towards others. Out of a gratitude to God for how he has forgiven us, out of a great love and appreciation of him for how he has forgiven us, we can begin to forgive and love those around us. We don't want to be in these relationships where we carry around the seed of bitterness. It just destroys us from the inside. We almost need to consciously make a decision. I'm not going to hold this against someone. I'm not going to carry this with me because ultimately it's, it's toxic to us. It's going to destroy our hearts and our lives. We have to decide, in a sense, to maintain a verdict of forgiveness over people's lives. I think one thing that the devil loves more than anything is to remind us of what people have done. Almost like this happens all the time in marriage, you know? Like, oh, this is the 10th time you've done the same thing. Like, why Why do you keep doing this? And, and the devil will just be there like, yeah, this person, they always do this or that or that. But almost as followers of Jesus, we are called to maintain a verdict of forgiveness over people's lives. And what we see is that when we choose the path of forgiveness, when we choose the way of Jesus to forgive and love and to extend grace towards those around us, we find freedom and rejoicing. We can be free from the spat houses um, of our hearts that are almost entrapping us and enslaving us and becoming masters of how we live and respond to people. When we choose the way of forgiveness, we see a story of redemption and reconciliation. And I think a great example of this is the life of Joseph. We see in the story of Joseph in Genesis that actually he has a bit of a problem in his family. He is the favorite, and people his brothers do not like that. And so they begin to kind of retaliate against him. They harm him. They do wrong by him. And just to add, he's not that great either. He keeps telling them that they're going to all bow down to him, and so it's just not a good situation. And what his brothers end up deciding they're going to do is that they sell him into slavery. And so he goes into slavery, and then he has this moment of integrity where he chooses to do the right thing, and he ends up in prison. He ends up in prison twice. And basically his life is in a shambles because of the harm that his brothers have done against him. When you think of the story, I'm sure we can all agree that in some ways Joseph has a right to be bitter. He has a right to want to enact revenge against his brothers, to get back at them for what he has done to them. But we see later on, many years later, that his brothers, he comes face to face with his brothers again. And there's a famine um, that's happening in Egypt. And they come begging for food, basically, to buy food from Egypt. And Joseph is the one that they have to ask for help. And they don't quite realize it's him. And I think probably in the natural, if I was Joseph, I'd be like, no food for you. Like, you have done such harm and wrong to me all my life. You've ruined my life. You've changed my life. Um, for the worse in some ways. But we see that Joseph's response is actually the way of forgiveness. He ends up reconciling with his brothers despite all they've done to harm him. 
he says to them in Genesis 50 verse 20, what you meant to harm me, God meant for good and for the saving of many lives. And what happens is we see when Joseph chooses to forgive them, when he chooses the path of reconciliation and redemption, is that there is a beautiful story that unfolds from that. Often we want to rewrite the story of how we've been wronged, and we want to do it by changing the ending, which often involves like harming or enacting revenge against other people. But we often underestimate what God can do through the power of forgiveness. Ultimately, when we forgive other people, we influence the world for Jesus. When we are sinned against and we choose to not forgive someone, we kind of remain wounded. And what happens with a wound is that it kind of festers, it gets worse and worse if it's not treated, and it kind of leaves us really hurting. Um, And we kind of have the sense of no healing when we let that happen. But when we choose the way of forgiveness and we allow Jesus to bring restoration and reconciliation and redemption to the story, we see that a scar starts forming over that wound. And the thing about a scar is that it did once hurt, but it hurts no longer. And instead now it tells a story. It tells a story of what happened. Wounds still hurt, but scars tell stories. And probably the most beautiful scar of all is actually the scars that were on Jesus' hands after he was crucified. And I always find it so interesting that when Jesus is resurrected, he comes back to the disciples. And I don't know, in my mind, I would think uh, resurrected Jesus, no holes, no scars, you know? Like that's the way I would go. And yet we see he comes back and he has these, <laughs> so funny. he has these scars on his hands that he shows his disciples, it's me, it's Jesus, look at my scars. And the thing about Jesus' scars is that they tell a story of the cost and price he paid so that we could be forgiven. They tell a beautiful story of love and redemption and reconciliation. And I really believe that in the life of Joseph, what we read there, how God uses that story to do incredible things. He uses it for the good. And just like with Jesus' story with his scars, it's actually a thing where we can go to God and be like, God, I don't know how to deal with this situation. I don't want to forgive but I'm going to trust you and choose this path. I really believe that God can use our stories to influence the world around us for Jesus. I think we've seen the story with um, Eugene when he was put in prison unfairly. But actually, God is using that story to shape and influence the world around him for the gospel. Scars, not wounds, that tell the stories of how we have found forgiveness and give forgiveness because of Jesus. That's what we want. We want to show the world a different kind of way, and that is the way of Jesus. So perhaps um, as I've been talking, there's a a person that's come into your mind this morning that has harmed you or wronged you in some way. Maybe it's a spouse or an ex-spouse or a sister or a brother or a family member or Um, a colleague, a boss, a friend, um, perhaps it's even a stranger. Maybe this morning you can ask God just to breathe his life into that situation, to help, to just help you to open up your heart to to start to forgive that person. It's not easy, but it will bring life. Ask God to use that story or that situation to influence the world for him. And maybe this morning, as you've been listening, you've been thinking of ways that perhaps you have harmed and offended others. Maybe you feel like you are the one who requires forgiveness, even forgiveness of yourself. 
I really believe this morning that Jesus does not want us to hold on to any of these things, the hurt that we've experienced ourselves or the hurt we've done against others. He wants to invite us into a story of redemption and reconciliation that is available to everyone who comes to him. So if you can just stand with me.